From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. If you focus specifically on the decentralized aspect, I think as regulators, it really is a challenge to us. If something is truly decentralized, it's something we've not had to really deal with before. You're looking at something that is essentially peer-to-peer interaction using smart contracts as the intermediary, that's a whole new a whole new issue for us. And I think it's one that we as a society need to really sit down and talk about what do we think the right regulatory approach is. That's SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce talking about the challenge of regulating DeFi or decentralized finance, which occurs when financial transactions are no longer intermediated by individuals or entities, but by predetermined protocols, also known as smart contracts, that are open for all to see, judge, and decide whether to use. DeFi offers tremendous opportunity to lower intermediation costs and bring a quality of treatment to all market participants. But there's no model yet on how to regulate the space. Commissioner Peirce, also known as Crypto Mom, explains why, as well as a host of other views she has on market regulation. My returning co-host today is Moody's School of Communication student, Hamad Najam. Commissioner Peirce, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Scott, it's great to be here. Um, I have to start with my little disclaimer, which is that the views I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the Securities and Exchange Commission or my fellow commissioners. Great. Thanks for the disclaimer. Uh, Welcoming back uh, Hamad Najam, uh, student co-host from the Moody School of Communication. Hamad, thanks for coming back again. Hi, Scott. Hi, Commissioner. Glad to be here. Hi, Hamad. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm excited about this conversation. Great. Well, we've been looking forward to having you on. We want to talk about cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. But before we dive in, we want to talk a little bit about you first. You've now been on the commission as a commissioner for three and a half years. I believe you finished a two-year term uh, from a predecessor and were recently confirmed for a second term, taking you through 2025. And I just have to ask, is that the right amount of time to be an SEC commissioner? It's hard to say. I mean, I certainly didn't feel done with what I came to do after the first filling out that that first uh, piece of someone else's term. We we have a rolling we have rolling terms so that we have continuity at the commission and you you're, the terms are staggered. Um, so when I came in, I was coming in sort of at the stub end of someone else's term, and I think it does help to be here for a few more years than than just a, a couple. When I when I came, I obviously had been on the staff, so I knew what what it was like at the commission. But there's just a tremendous amount to learn, and uh, so I, I really appreciated the opportunity to have a little more time. So we wanted to talk a little bit about your regulatory philosophy and how it's changed over time, and uh, what it is currently, and how you view things in your current position. Well, my regulatory philosophy is generally that I think people should be allowed to engage in activities uh, and transactions that that they want to engage in and that don't affect other people without having to ask permission to do those things. Now, we obviously have a pretty highly regulated framework for the securities markets and as a commissioner whose job it is to implement the law that Congress laid out, 
I respect that law and that's that's my job. But I think as we approach new questions about whether we need to regulate something, a question I ask myself is, you know, are we taking into account the liberty interests of the people involved, as well as questions around investor protection and, and protection of the integrity of the market? I think it's really important to remember that the liberty of people to invest as they want is part of investor protection. So that kind of animates my approach to a lot of the issues I see at the SEC. So you, you recently made a comment at the Investor Advisory Committee, and I'm going to quote you here. It says, investors at times may be willing to take on more risk than a regulator thinks is prudent. Do you think the SEC has become too paternalistic in its views, or has it always been that way? Uh, what is the state of affairs? You know, as, as people who have joined a regulator because we care about the markets, we care about retail investors, it's very tempting to want to put ourselves out there and stand in front of, of retail investors and say, no, we think that you should go, go down a different course. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's very common for regulators to feel that way. And that's not a bad, it's, it's not a bad inclination, but the problem is that we're really not serving adults by trying to tell them how to spend their money. We can serve them better by trying to get them the information they need to make decisions for themselves and for their families. Much as we think we know what's right for people, we don't know their individual circumstances. We don't know their risk tolerance. We don't know what their dreams are. We don't know, you know what, what their earning potential is. We have really no conception of what's going on at the ground, you know, in an investor's personal life. And so if we try to assume what's right for a particular person, we're, we're really taking away their ability to choose. So I think that's something that, you know, any regulator is going to always feel that tension of really wanting to step in, but saying, you know what, it's better if we just work on getting information out there to people so that they can make wise decisions for themselves, given the circumstances that they know about their own lives. And did your thinking on regulation change as a result of the financial crisis? It did. I think the financial crisis for anyone who was um, paying attention to financial regulation at the time was a, was a really key moment. And so for me, one of the eye-opening things about the financial crisis is that I thought very sophisticated market participants made very foolish decisions. And I was trying to understand why that was. And I think one of the one of the things that I realized is that regulatory decisions can have really far-reaching consequences that the regulators who designed them did not think about or intend. And so it's always important for us as we're designing regulation to think about how is this going to influence behavior? Is it going to drive everyone into making the same bad decision? which is, of course, not the intention of regulation, but it can be the effect of regulation. And so as I think about regulation now, I, I'm always trying to game out what might be the, the, the long-term effects of what we're doing. Might we be driving poor decision-making by individual actors? You know, ultimately, 
in a financial crisis, a lot of people are going to lose money and people who took risks are going to perhaps see that there's a consequence to taking those risks. It's very important that people bear the consequence of their decisions so that the the system can work as intended. And we we really need to focus on making sure that the incentives are set up so that people actually do uh, bear the consequences of their decisions. That's a that's a really interesting perspective. And I'm thinking like after the financial crisis, a lot of behaviors changed even before regulation was implemented. So the Dodd-Frank Act, a lot of banks pulled back. They weren't acting the same way they did before, not taking the same risks. And regulation came in and in many ways codified some of the existing post-crisis practices. And I'm wondering, is that a prudent part of the regulation so that when banks forget and the new generation comes in, that those rules are there? Or, or is there danger in that codification moving forward? Well, I think it's great that private actors take stock of their risk management after anything happens and they say, wait a minute, do we need to do something better the next time around? Were we allowing activities to happen with the idea that we would never have to never have to face any risks? And you know, if so, what can we do next time to make sure that the risk management voices at the firm have a have a louder megaphone than they did before? And so I do think that it it makes sense for regulators to look at what best practices are out there in the industry as they're writing their rules. But I also think it's important for regulators to remember that sometimes a risk management approach that one firm takes may not work as well at another firm. And so you may not want to impose a very strict approach uh, because it may it may not work across the board. It may not work well over time. Things may change over time and people may need the flexibility to change their their risk management approach. And you also want to make sure that people are not all trying to manage their risk in exactly the same way because that can actually intensify a problem um, when there is a crisis. So that's why I like to to build in the flexibility, hold people to high standards, but build in the flexibility and then an important piece of that is make sure that when something goes wrong, the government isn't running in to rescue people who didn't do risk management well or who made bad decisions. That can be extremely harmful to the marketplace because then people think, well, I can take all the risk I want because I know the government's going to come in and bail me out. So you, you talked about changes. And one of the big changes since the financial crisis is the rise in ascendancy of crypto assets. It's been rather remarkable, and that's what we're going to talk about now. And to start, you've been called crypto mom. We want to know why is that, and are you okay with that? Well, I think I got that that name after I wrote a dissent uh, on a disapproval of a Bitcoin exchange-traded product. It's remarkable to me that that was, I think, three years ago, and we still don't have a Bitcoin exchange-traded product. I, I find that um, I wouldn't have believed at the time that uh, if you had told me, we still wouldn't have one. But in any event, as as for the name, I, I don't mind the name at all unless people take it to mean, and this sort of ties back to what we were talking about before, that I'm there to make decisions for you, that mom's there to to make decisions and to to help you out when you make bad decisions. I really think it's important for people not to think about the government as their parent. but to be 
willing to take responsibility for their own decisions, and then for the consequences of those decisions. So to the extent that anyone gets a misimpression based upon the name, then that's not a good thing. So just following up on your ETP for exchange traded product for Bitcoins, I think there have now been about nine applications for a security, which is an ETF-like product where the holdings are a Bitcoin. Like in, in one or two sentences, like what is the hangup that keeps that from being approved? Well, it's a little hard for me to understand when I look at the applications versus the statutory structure, the, the, the statutory requirements for these kinds of products. Of course, we look at each one on its facts and circumstances, and they haven't all been identical. So I think it's important to lay that out, that our staff looks very carefully at the facts and circumstances presented. But essentially, the argument, as I have seen, it seems to me, is the Bitcoin spot market doesn't look like the equity markets that we're used to regulating. And until they do, we don't want to have a product built on top of Bitcoin. And I just think that's the wrong approach to take. What we're looking at is, is trying to understand whether the product built on top of Bitcoin or whatever other asset you're talking about can trade in our markets in a way that's, that's acceptable to us under our regulatory structure. And we were able to get there for gold. And I just don't understand why we haven't been able to get there for Bitcoin on any of the applications that have come before us. So we'll probably talk a little bit more about those issues in a moment, but Hamad, what is like the top level question we should be asking when we think about crypto assets? I think before we really, really dive in, I think it would be helpful if you could give us like a dinner party definition of a crypto asset. Well, if you're at dinner with Chair Gensler, the answer is it's a security, but if you're at dinner with me, what I would say is it's a digital it's a digital asset, a digital representation of value. Uh, it doesn't have to be a money thing. It could be something like a non-fungible token, but it's a digital asset that is secured by by crypto, by cryptography, which helps address issues like double spending. Do you have a sort of worldview about their current utility and their future utility? Because it is a very polarized opinion on like where crypto will go and what its potential is. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you think its utility will be. Well, as an initial matter, I should say I'm not I'm not a technologist. I'm not able to predict, you know, I'm not a coder. I'm not I don't have some of the skills that people who are actually building this stuff have. So let me put that out there first. And as a regulator, it isn't really my job to figure out whether something will succeed or fail. I think that's the job of the marketplace to figure that out. That said, I think that there's a lot of interesting work going on with respect to crypto. And I think some of that work will fail and some of it will succeed in producing things that are fairly widespread in usage. I think that crypto will transform the way our securities markets work, um, likely. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think there there's an opportunity to transform the way the markets work. And I think transforming the way value is is transferred over the internet, that's a really, uh, a really important piece of the internet that hadn't been solved until crypto assets 
came along. And so that's where I see possibility. And then I also see possibility in just the ability of crypto to facilitate decentralized cooperation among people. Uh, and I think that's a really, a really interesting concept, this idea that you can coordinate the actions of people all over the world without having a centralized entity doing the coordination. And that could have really meaningful consequences for the way that we work together, the way we organize our, our, our labor and sell our labor, but it also could have interesting consequences for the way we interact with each other socially. You know, you can, you can think of social networks being decentralized and that having really powerful consequences. And so I think a lot of people are out there trying to play around with the technology, figure out where it works and where it doesn't. I think it's still early days. I do caution people, you know, don't just throw your money at this space. You need to be thinking carefully about where your money is going and you need to be understanding that there's a lot of risk in anything new. And that certainly includes crypto. And there are also a lot of people who rush into something new like this, slap a crypto label on whatever they're doing and run away with your money, never to be seen again. So I, I just urge people to use use caution and and it's it's wonderful to be optimistic, but it's also good to be realistic and pessimistic and skeptical and ask questions. Absolutely. And these economies of digital goods are going growing pretty fast, for example, like in the NFT space. So how do you view the role of the SEC in the development of these digital good economies? Well, I think one difficulty for people who have been building things in this space is that they've come in and they're thinking about the technology, they're not really thinking about regulation. And those of us who are in the regulatory space know is that financial regulation is uh, quite intense and it touches lots of different things in lots of different ways. There are many different regulators at both the federal and state level and then internationally, of course. And so it's important for people building things in this space to think about whether there is any intersection with securities law. And I think there is on a number of different fronts. We've seen that a lot of people have tried to use, have tried to do capital raising in the crypto space. And that's certainly an area where it's going to run into the securities laws. People have built products that might look like either securities or perhaps uh, other kinds of derivatives products that might be in our regulatory ambit or in the CFTCs. People have built things that might look like a mutual fund or a money market fund, and, and those might fall within our space. So there are a lot of different potential places where the securities laws will, will touch crypto. Yeah, so that leads us into regulation. And you mentioned you know, the promise of DeFi or decentralized finance and promoting the cooperation that is decentralized. And like one of the questions is, like, how do you regulate something where there is no entity to regulate? And I'll just preface it by, you know, we have the SEC who oversees stocks and bonds. We have the CFTC that oversees future markets. Where does DeFi and crypto fit in, in your view, to the existing regulatory structure? And where does it not fit in? Well, to some extent, you already see the CFTC has been, I think, a bit ahead of us in the sense that they have a regulated futures market now. Uh, in Bitcoin futures. And so there's there's certainly a touch there. 
If you focus specifically on the decentralized aspect, I think as regulators, it really is a challenge to us. If something is truly decentralized, it's, it's something we've not had to really deal with before. We're used to dealing with large, typically large centralized entities um, that we can easily reach out to and regulate. But if you're, if you're looking at something that is essentially peer-to-peer interaction using smart contracts as the intermediary, that's a whole, new, a whole new issue for us. And I think it's one that we as a society need to really sit down and talk about what do we think the right regulatory approach is? You know, do we want to kind of take the approach that people should be able to enter into transactions with one another and that absent a, a, a regulatory reason, we don't need to step in? Or do we want to take a, a different kind of approach? I've been pretty clear that, you know, I think it's important for people's freedom to be really recognized as, as an important concept as we approach this debate. Um, but I recognize I'm not the only voice. And so that's why I think it's really important for society as a whole to have this conversation. It shouldn't be just the regulators saying, yep, we're going to come in and this is how we're going to apply the existing rules. We're not going to make any changes to the existing rules and we're going to force you to fit yourself into the rules. That sort of misses the point, which is regulation is supposed to serve people and society. And that means people and society need to be coming together and deciding how are we going to deal with this new thing? How are we going to deal with these decentralized communities of people? How do we want to regulate them? So DeFi certainly poses a challenge, but let's go to CFI or centralized finance. And that looks a lot like traditional markets in the sense you have a centralized exchange for trading, but there's a technology change. And I'm wondering, like, how does that affect all of the intermediaries that have built up over the past hundred years for trading stocks. When you think about clearing custody record keeping, you're now on a blockchain. Is that going to change the way regulators should be looking at who the intermediaries are on these trading platforms and exchanges? Well, I think you're raising the right set of questions, right? So if we decide that, or if, if some of these things are securities, then that's where we come in. And so if they are securities, that implies a whole set of rules that have to be complied with as these securities change hands. And so you might have a trading platform that is trading digital asset securities. And you know, then the questions are, how do we take the existing set of rules that apply to, to a trading platform and and adjust those so that they work for a platform that trades digital asset securities. And if it is trading digital asset securities alongside digital assets that aren't securities or, or alongside securities that aren't digital assets, how do those different pieces of the business interact with one another? I think those are, those are really important questions. And that's been some of my frustration that there are a lot of really technical questions we have to grapple with. And we've not been grappling with them because we've not been willing to sort of grapple with the basic question of when when are these things securities and when are we going to treat them as not being securities anymore, but as being something else? So I think we have to answer that question. And then we have to really get to work on those difficult questions around custody, around transferring these securities from one person to another 
those are the difficult questions we're going to have to to work work on and work through. On the note of crypto assets and whether or not they're securities, could you explain the Howey test and how it works or doesn't work for crypto assets? Sure. So the Howey test comes up because we have a broad definition of security in the United States. And the, the definition says a stock or a bond is a security, but there's also this catch-all category called an investment contract, which says if you go out there and, and you tell people that you want their money because you're building something, won't require any efforts from them. It's just going to be you and, and, and the other people who are raising the money building this thing. And I'm telling, and the person raising money is out there saying, and you're going to make a profit from the work that I and the other people building this thing are doing. Then that looks an awful lot like a security. So it's the investment of money with the expectation of profits through the efforts of others that really pulls something into um, the Howey test and says, yes, this is an investment contract. So that has been used to identify a lot of offerings token offerings as securities offerings. Now, there's another piece of that question, which is what about the token itself? Is the token itself actually a security? That's a more difficult question because just because something is sold wrapped in an, an investment contract, wrapped in this promise that when I sell you this thing, you can just sit back and I'm going to take it and build something and you're going to make money. That doesn't mean that the thing that's wrapped in the investment contract is itself a security. I think this Howey test leads into some confusion that exists in markets today because crypto assets come in many flavors that can be really distinct. So you have the mature tokens like Bitcoin and Ether. I think many people view those as being currency of some sort. Then you have these initial token offerings that you alluded to, which are what could ultimately be a currency, but when it launches, there's some sort of capital raising associated with it and perhaps a project that goes along with it in terms of how that currency will be used. Then you have stable coins, uh, which may look like a money market. They're coins that are backed by a reserve that could be a fiat currency or other types of assets. And then over the horizon, we have what I think will be synthetic traditional securities where you issue bonds and warrants and you know equity. Uh, on a blockchain. And so I guess at a high level, when you think about regulation of each of these activities, should there be different types and levels of regulation or even different regulators for those activities? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a good question. I, I think some of this stuff is really a variation on, on very traditional activities that have been regulated by us or by banking regulators. And so one can argue, well, let's just slot those things right into to the existing rules. And, you know, when I came to the SEC as a commissioner, my view was generally our securities laws are intended to be pretty flexible and they've worked pretty well over time at, as different things have come on the scene at, at reacting to those and incorporating those in the existing rule book. But as I learn more about crypto, I think there are distinct characteristics that may require us to rethink how some of those rules apply. Does that mean that we need to set up an entirely new regulatory framework for crypto? Because it does, as you said, Scott, encompass so many different things that might not actually work too well. Maybe it makes more sense for us just to try to 
take the rule book we have and make adjustments to it. But again, I think that's part of the larger conversation that that we need to have as a society, recognizing that if we get the regulation wrong, we could squelch the growth in this area. And, and that's something, you know, we're already seeing, I hear from people all the time who say, we're just not doing anything in the security space because the regulation isn't clear enough, the framework is it, it just doesn't make sense, or we're just going overseas because there's a much more sensible approach being taken there. So I think we do need to be open to at least modifying the existing framework we have so that each of these different types of crypto can develop um, in a way that makes sense for society. Yeah, so that's interesting because the Basel Committee on Bank Supervision uh, is in the middle of a consultation on how to put crypto assets into the banking system. So here we have global, a global regulatory body who's very well respected and sets the rules for how banks work uh, worldwide, acknowledging that there is a need to create a framework for digital assets to be in the banking system. And at the same time, we have a lot of discourse about whether or not we can actually trade and, and what the regulatory framework should look like in the U.S., and the difference between market regulators and prudential regulators, let's take stable coins, um, like where do they where do they fit in? Is is that outside the scope of the SEC? Should that be a prudentially regulated crypto asset? Well, not only are there different kinds of digital assets, stable coins being one of those kinds, there are also different kinds of stable coins. And so you can talk about a stable coin and it can it can look like one category, but actually encompasses a lot of different designs of stable coins. And so I think the question that I ask as a securities regulator is, what is the design? What's underlying the, the stable coin? And, and does that then bring it within our, within our jurisdiction? Or is it better within the banking jurisdiction because of, of what's backing it? So, you know, stable coins have grown tremendously in, in the last year or so, um, and I mean, a couple years, I'd say. And so we do have to recognize that they're a very vital part of the digital landscape. And, and so we have to be thinking about them. But I think it's only fair to, to look at them on a case-by-case -case basis. Do we know enough about stable coins to say how they should be regulated? Or do we need more time and more deliberation to be able to say that? Well, I mean, again, people are still, they're developing stable coins, new ones, you know, and, and so I can't speak to stable coins across the board. I think there's some stable coins are pretty well established now. And so, so I think we can get the facts about those particular stable coins and analyze them on a, on a case by case basis. But no, I mean, I would say I certainly don't know any, don't know anywhere near enough about about a whole range of things in the in the crypto world because they're changing all the time and there's a lot to learn and I think that's that's part of the regulator's challenge is just staying on top of a of a really dynamic uh, landscape. So Hamad, we in preparing for this we talked about a lot of things and initial coin offerings was one of them. So I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, like what are the confusing questions or things that need to be answered? What should we be asking Commissioner Purse? How are they um, similar or different from security offerings um, and uh, in ways that are important to you as a commissioner? So in, in 
I'm going to give the same lawyerly answer, which is it depends on the facts and circumstances. But there are some instances where I think that someone goes out and, and raises money to build something and it looks like it could be a securities offering. I think there's certainly some gray area there. And, and so the, the difficulty that I see is that if you're setting out to build a network and you want to have a native token on that network, what you need to do is you need to make sure that people are using the token, that people have the token so that they can use it. So you're trying to cultivate those network effects. And in order to do that, somehow got to distribute the tokens. And that distribution could end up in as as we securities regulators go and look at it, in hindsight could end up looking like you were doing a capital raise. And then we're going to say, well, that should have been regulated as a securities offering. And that's why what I've suggested is that we create some sort of a safe harbor. I have a specific one that I put out there for people to react to. And the idea would be to say, look, you've got three years. You can you can develop your network during this three-year period. You will be subject to the anti-fraud laws and certain disclosure requirements um, because people buying the tokens need to know who you are, who are building it, what you have in mind for what you're building. They need to have that information. It needs to be updated over time so they can see the progress of the project. And, and that sort of addresses the legitimate concerns that people have about information asymmetries between the people who are selling the tokens and the people who are buying the tokens. But it also allows a little bit more freedom to develop this network, to get it up and running. And then at the end of the three-year period, you can kind of see, is this, is this actually a, a, a network with a token functioning on it? Is it decentralized? Does it even make sense for the securities laws to apply anymore? Because at that point, there might not be information asymmetries between the people who started the project and now the people who are participating in the network. So I, I'm not wedded to my particular version of the safe harbor, but I think it would make sense for us to think about some way to allow people to do a token distribution event, whether it's a token sale or an airdrop, in a way that they don't have to worry about getting on the wrong side of the securities laws. You know, that is, I think, something that's holding people back from, from getting networks up and running. So that's kind of how I think about that issue. So based on what you just said, my understanding is an ICO or initial token offering, it doesn't reflect uh, a, a traditional IPO. There's not two years of financial statements. There's no project that you can, you know, tell an investor about that this works. It's an idea that requires time to mature and it may work, it may not, but it, the disclosures are forward looking. And so is this safe harbor meant to give time for that network and governance to be established for that project? Then what is the disclosure that comes after that? So then after that, what you do is you try to figure out whether or not this is something that you need to register as a security or instead, whether it's something that doesn't make sense to have the securities law framework apply to it. So you're going to need to get a lawyer to weigh in at that point and, and, and make that decision. But you'll have more information than you did at the beginning of the three-year period. Now, you know the way I envision it, a project that's ready to launch its network has actually done a lot of work already on the front end before getting, getting ready to launch and bring in lots of retail 
purchasers of tokens into the picture. So it's not as if I come up with an idea, you know, over breakfast and I decide I'm going to start my three-year clock ticking. That's probably unwise because these things tend to take a long time to to build and you're not really going to have much to say if you just if your idea is really nascent like that. So it's really designed for projects that are are have a very clear plan of how they're going to get from A to decentralized in that 3-year period. Yeah, so that that disclosure that takes place now is generally, you know, called a white paper, which can be very technical, has a lot of information. Is that the seed that could be turned into a regulatory document or filing setting certain standards about what investor needs are initially? Yeah, I think a lot of the information that you would see in a white paper is what we've identified in the safe harbor as some things that people would want to see. Now, one of the things we've seen with a lot of white papers is people can write down a lot of things and not really mean what they say. And so I think it is important to have the backstop of the anti-fraud uh, laws and, and, you know, to say you can't just you can't just lie and expect not to face any consequences. So there is a realization that, you know, people have misused the white paper process to take advantage of people. And, and certainly the safe harbor is not intended to be a vehicle for people to do that, um, which is why there's some protections built around it. Yeah. So let's, my last question on initial token offerings is, you know, take us back to 2017 when the SEC first issued an investigation or determined that something called the Dow token was a security. And with the benefit of hindsight, you know, four years later, like how prescient was the report, how much of it was right, how much of it wasn't right. Can you tell us after the fact what you think of that report? I wasn't here at the time of the Dow report. That was before I arrived as a commissioner. Um, and I don't know, had I been here, how I would have voted on that specifically, because there was one of the things that, as I mentioned, when we look at the Howey test, we focus on efforts of others. And so is it just the efforts of the people promoting the project or, or do the people who are participating also have a role to play? And I think one could ask the question in the Dow report whether the role that people played in it was, was active enough to maybe take it out of the typical Howey framework. But I think putting that aside, putting my concerns about that aside, I think it was good for the SEC to, to tell people, look, we're looking at this area. We think there's a securities nexus here. And we think you should be careful. So I don't, you know, in hindsight, I don't think that that was a bad idea to do. But what I do have concern about is that most of the speaking we've been doing with respect to these questions of what's what's the connection, what's the nexus between securities law and crypto has been through enforcement actions. And, and I, I just think that it's not really productive to come in only through enforcement. And instead, I think what we should be doing is laying out a framework, laying out some guidance, telling people, these are the areas where you need to be careful. If you come in, we can work on adjusting the rules so that they work to, you know, take up the safe harbor idea, take up some other type of safe harbor idea and, and lay out something productive so that people can really feel like, you know, it's not just going to be speaking by enforcement uh, several years after the fact. Earlier this month, Poloniex 
crypto trading platform reached a $10 million settlement last month um, with the SEC that you considered and, quote, enforce, don't figure out how to reasonably regulate approach. So can you explain a little bit more what you meant by that? Sure. Um, so the Poloniex settlement was against a trading platform that we took the position, the commission took the position that some of the digital assets that were traded on that platform were indeed securities. Didn't specify which ones, kept a little mystery around it, but uh, but did come to that conclusion. And because of that, it should have been registered as an exchange or more likely as an alternative trading system, an ATS, which is like an exchange light. And I dissented from that because I think there's a problem when you tell someone, well, you should have been registered. But if, if Poloniex or another exchange had tried to come in, I fear they would have met the same fate that many others who have come and tried to register, tried to work with us have met, which is there's been a lot of waiting involved and a lot of back and forth um, with us and with FINRA, which is the self-regulatory organization that's responsible for, for this space. ATSs are broker-dealers and have to go through a process at FINRA. So I don't think it's productive to tell people we're going to bring an enforcement action against you for not registering as something that you would have had an awful lot of t- trouble registering as. We have provided some limited guidance. And so that's helpful. We've provided some ability for people to interact with digital assets, but it's it's extremely limited. There are a lot of conditions around it, which make it really impractical for the way that a lot of people are doing things now. And so I think we really need to sit down and figure out what we need to do on the regulatory front to enable people to do things that to, to build things in this space in a way that makes sense um, for everyone involved. And that's just, it's a difficult task because there are a lot of difficult questions here that we have to answer. And and so I want us to sit down in that Poloniex dissent. I laid out some of the questions that I think we need to be grappling with. Um, and that I think would be more productive than just bringing enforcement action after enforcement action. Yeah. So can you tell us what that is? Can you explain how crypto firms can escape from this paradox that the only way they can look forward, uh, move forward with a regulator is to do so without permission? Chair Gensler, who's been here for around five months, has taken a lot of interest in the crypto area. I mean, he comes from MIT where he was teaching about digital assets and financial regulation. So he's certainly thought a lot about these issues. He's spoken quite a bit about them recently. And so I think people know he's interested and he's expressed interest in crafting a regulatory framework, I think that that does allow some of these activities to happen. And so I think that's a good thing. But again, I think that discussion about what that regulatory framework should be is one that we need to be having as a broader society. We need to be involving the people who are actually using the platforms who are using uh, who, who are who are interested in crypto um, we need to be involving those people in the discussion because I think to go back to the beginning of our conversation we as regulators are inherently paternalistic or in my case maternalistic right we're trying to make sure nobody gets hurt but you know, Part of life is taking risks. And so we we need to allow people to take risks that they, after deliberation, decide to take. And so whatever we do construct in terms of a regulatory framework, I hope 
it recognizes the right of people to make decisions with their own money, their own time, their own talents without us trying to step in front of that. Do you think this requires new statutory authorities or can it be done with the current acts that are in the books? Well, I, I think that there are different ways to do this. We at the SEC actually have quite a bit of authority to make adjustments to our regime through exemptive relief, no action relief that allow people to you know, use the existing structure, but with some modifications. That said, there are people, I, I think Chair Gensler has been, has been pretty outspoken about the fact that he thinks that crypto spot platforms should be registered and regulated. And given that they trade things that may or may not be securities, the question is, should they be regulated by us or by someone else or how should that be done? And I think those are the kinds of questions that it, it would be important for Congress to get involved in answering. But, you know, again, we can we can certainly do take some steps on our part to provide some clarity, to provide a framework that that does at least offer these platforms and others in the space the ability to do some of the things they're trying to do. That was a very careful answer, saying that there might be a role for Congress, but there's still a lot that the SEC can do even without those authorities. Is that a fair summarization? It is. I mean, I, I you know, I want to be careful here because I think it's important for us, just because something isn't regulated the way that we see other things regulated that we're familiar with, doesn't mean that we just have to slap the existing framework on those new things. And that's why I keep coming back to the point that let's have a conversation about this. I mean, I think it's not always a great mix when you get regulators like me who are struggling to try to keep up with the technological developments, developing a regulatory framework without any input from people who actually are abreast of the of the technological uh, developments. So we do, I think, have to be careful about how we how we approach this. And whatever we do needs to involve a lot of a lot of good thinking by a lot of people who are involved in the space, as well as people who are familiar with regulation, get those people talking and, and, and you know, the general public talking as well. So I want to go back to enforcement again. And you also had a recent joint statement with Commissioner Roisman and expressing disappointment the commission settled an action with coin schedule based on some of the same types of issues you've already alluded to. What I'm hoping you can do, I know you can't talk inside baseball about like what happens in these closed meetings where you make these decisions, but I'm, I'm hoping you can tell us about the process. You don't just get to a joint statement without a lot of things that happen in the background. Can you tell us a little bit about like how that process works? Sure. I think that's a good question because I think a lot of people look at the SEC and it's kind of a black box. So it's important to remember we're a five-member commission. We're the ones, we have a huge staff um, of thousands of people, but the five of us are the ones who ultimately make the decisions on if we're going to adopt a new rule or if we're going to bring in enforcement action. And so you can have a situation where some of the members of the commission support an enforcement action and some of them don't. And we have we have uh, a couple ways of making decisions. It can go seriatim, it's called, which is there's no meeting where we all sit down and talk about something. It just, we vote in 
one after another based on the papers that are presented to us by the staff. By the staff, the staff makes a recommendation um, when they're when they're thinking about an enforcement action. They make a recommendation to the commission. This, they say this is what we think we should do. These are the charges we think we should bring, um, and then we vote on it. So sometimes, though, we sit down as a group and we talk about these issues. Those meetings are not public for obvious reasons. They're not open to the public. And at those meetings, we can talk with one another. We can talk with the staff about the issues. Um, and then we ultimately come to a conclusion. And, and again, in, in that particular instance, uh, Commissioner Roisman and I decided that we wanted to put out a statement because, again, one of the frustrations that people have is we come to these determinations. Well, you were involved with securities, and so therefore you violated our rules because you weren't registered with us, or you, in the case of coin schedule, they violated a rule under the securities laws that only applied because they were dealing with securities. And so our point was well, you ought to tell people which securities you thought, which digital assets you thought were securities. I understand the other side of that because you know, when you're when you're deciding the question of whether something is a security or not, so you might be doing it in the context of a of a case against an entity like Coin Schedule, and you might not have the pushback that you would have if you were dealing with another entity. And so those determinations, that's one of the reasons those determinations don't get made public. But at the same time, a lot of people want to know, you know, give us some kind of roadmap of how you're deciding whether something is a security or not. And we're pretty cagey and cagey is not the right word, but we're we're not always forthcoming about what we think are securities and whatnot. And so people have lots of questions and some of these actions just raise more questions than they answer. So on, on a matter like this, like what would happen is staff generate an action memo thinking we need to take some action that gets distributed to the commissioners, you read it with your councils, maybe it makes sense and you vote seriatim and it's 5-0 and it, everybody says, yes, we take that action. But sometimes there are issues that you're unclear about, you're not certain about. Uh, so you talk to staff, I'm assuming you do that bilaterally, and then you also go to this closed meeting. And when you're in that closed meeting, I'm like, like what do you do? I mean, do, do you talk to staff? Do they present their case? Do you ask questions? Like what gets, how does the deliberation work from a governance perspective? I mean, it depends on the, on the matter, but, you know, typically this, the staff will, will present the case and then the, the commission can discuss with the staff and with one another. And when you ask your questions, I mean, do you ask questions of staff and do you view that as a method of accountability where it's one thing to write a memo and have it deliberate on, but another thing to get in front of five commissioners and answer questions about that memo. Well, I think the way I view the commission is it's, it's, I really like the commission structure where you have five different people with five different backgrounds, then drawing on the wisdom of the staff of, of 4,500 people, right? So you get this really nice um, interaction of, of people who think about issues in different ways. And so Paper is important, right, to think about things, to be able to read it and think about it. But I think discussing is also really important. I think one theme that you'll get from this interview is that I think there's real value in getting lots of people's input because I believe in the 
I, I like distributed things, right? I believe in distributed knowledge, distributed across society. It's not all resident here at a regulator in DC or at one member of the commission. There are a lot of really smart people all over the country. And so I like to draw from as many people as I can, as I think through regulatory issues. And, and that plays out in my consideration of enforcement actions, in my consideration of rules. And so that process at the commission is designed. Obviously, we're not going to have conversations about, about enforcement actions with the broader community, but we do have discussions among lots of people at the commission, and that can, can help to produce better outcomes. Shifting gears a little bit, in preparing for our discussion with you, and one of the things that Hamad brought up, I think, was really interesting about the infrastructure uh, deal that currently was or is in process right now. So, Hamad, like, what did you bring up and ask me about that really is meant for Commissioner Purse? Yeah, I was just interested to know um, your view on the infrastructure bill, including a pay for that puts stricter requirements on brokers of cryptocurrency to report transactions to the IRS? So, Hamad, great question. To uh, it's, a, it's a very timely issue. I started out by saying that I don't speak for the commission. I certainly don't speak for Congress. And, and, I, and you know, in my role as a regulator, my job is to do what Congress tells me to do. But I do think that that infrastructure debate was a really it was an interesting discussion because it brought a lot of people into thinking about crypto who really hadn't thought a lot about it before. And it, it, it brought up the fact that when you put labels on things that we draw from our traditional TradFi world, our traditional finance world, we have to be careful because they might apply in an unintended way in the crypto world. And so we, we really want to make sure that we're, again, protecting the ability of individuals to engage in transactions with other individuals it, it, without requiring everyone to register with us or someone else. And so I, I think it was, a, it was a good moment for crypto to highlight um, some of the intricacies of crypto, some of the, the, the importance of making sure that People in Congress and at regulators are informed about how crypto operates and, and maybe about some ways to think about applying rules in a way that, that's effective to achieve the goals of legislators or regulators, but also um, respects the unique aspects of the technology and the aspects of the technology that people are really benefiting from engaging with. Were you surprised at all? with how industry responded either in their coordination or in the loudness of their voices? I mean, did anything surprise you about the response that got? Well, people are really passionate about this industry. And so I, I was not surprised to see that passion unleashed in, in connection with the infrastructure debate. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, there's been a lot of growth and excitement in the last several years. And, and I think that we all in Washington got a little bit of a taste of that. Commissioner Purse, we, we really appreciate the time you've taken with us. And I want to defer to Hamad and coming up and asking the last question. Yes. Yeah, so you've talked a little bit already about how dynamic a space crypto is. And, you know, it's something you have to continuously learn on and uh, stay on top of. But in what you've learned so far, where do you see where the crypto industry is going to be in five years? 
Well, I think a lot of that does depend on, and I hate to say this, but I think a lot of it does depend on what we as regulators decide to do. I've said before that I don't think that regulators can outlaw crypto because they're, you know, the whole premise of crypto is that it's, it's, it's based on decentralization. And so we can try to say, you can't do this, but it's, it's, it's very difficult for us just to shut the whole thing down. So I don't think that that's what's going to happen. But the question is, will we allow innovation to happen, for example, in the security space? Will we allow people to think about where this technology can be useful in transforming the way that the securities industry operates? Or will we make it so difficult for people to try to do stuff in the securities space by retaining regulatory ambiguity, retaining our our enforcement first approach so that people go and do things elsewhere. So I think crypto will definitely be contributing to society. The question is just where will it be doing that? And I think that depends on how we structure our regulatory framework, whether we make it inviting to whether we, we structure it so that it achieves the role that regulation has, you know, so that it achieves the regulatory objectives without squelching um, the dynamism and the growth. So I think there's a real, I mean, I know I'm not really answering your question, but I think there's a real question of how crypto is going to develop and where it's going to develop. And a lot of that does turn on what we as regulators decide to do or not do. Great. Well, we really appreciate your time today and helping to educate us on your views on where the digital asset industry is and where it may be going. So thanks again. Thanks so much to both of you for having me. It's been a delight. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Commissioner Peirce. It's a timely discussion because there's a lot of talk in the media these days about crypto assets and not just about their meteoric rise and volatility of popular tokens like Bitcoin and Ether, but from regulators, Congress, and global authorities on how market participants and their activities should be subject to rules and regulation. Commissioner Peirce has talked about the need to do something in this space for several years and has proposed solutions like her safe harbor proposal for initial token offerings. There's now a chorus of other regulatory voices actively working on the issues. As I mentioned on the show, the Basel Committee on Bank Supervision, the primary global standard setter for the prudential regulation of banks, is in the middle of a public consultation asking for views on how to allow crypto assets into the global banking system. The European Commission is developing its own framework to regulate markets and crypto assets, which also goes by the acronym MICA or MICA. In the US, developments are moving more slowly, but we may soon see action The president's working group, that is the group of regulators brought together by President Biden, have been meeting to discuss whether a particular type of crypto asset, a stablecoin, should be prudentially regulated. The SEC, with new chairman Gary Gensler, who has spent several years at MIT studying crypto assets, has his own views and thinks stablecoins look more like money market funds and perhaps should be regulated like investment companies. Congress is holding hearings, helping members get up to speed on the various issues, and we're now seeing new bills pop up. The challenge, as Commissioner Peirce highlighted in several ways, is that crypto assets look a lot like other financial instruments we know, for example, securities, but in fact, they're their own thing, in many ways a new asset class, and deserve new considerations and treatment. There's likely a long road yet to cover before regulatory decisions are codified, and many of the views are still extreme. One camp believes they're all fraud and speculation, another believes they're the future of money, And these views, I think, only time and experience are going to help us resolve. Thanks again for joining us. If you like what you heard, please rate us and let others know how to find us. 
Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Buddhist School of Communication.